You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems with your host, Northwestern University internist, Dr. Lee Friedman. Rotator cuff injuries are among the most common problems that afflict patients. What new insights from biomedical engineering can help us in our approach to this bothersome condition? I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me today is Dr. Louis Saslowski, Professor of Orthopedic Surgery and Bioengineering, Vice Chair of Research for Orthopedic Surgery, Director of the Pennsylvania Center for Musculoskeletal Disorders, and Director of the McKay Orthopedic Research Lab. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Sadlowski. Thank you very much. Well, rotator cuff problems I see all the time in my practice as a primary care doctor. How often does this problem afflict patients across the country, and what is the mechanism of injury? Well, rotator cuff injuries are the most common cause of shoulder pain in adults. Furthermore, it's the second most common cause of musculoskeletal disorders in the work environment secondary to low back pain. So once we are in the adult population, the uh, rotator cuff injuries are are extremely important. They occur through many mechanisms. Clinically, people talk about three categories. Those are intrinsic, extrinsic, and overuse conditions, and I can maybe briefly describe each of those. When we think about intrinsic mechanisms of rotator cuff injury, we first think of uh, things that are intrinsic internal to the tendon, things such as decrease in vascularity, an altered collagen fiber organization, a degenerative condition due to chronic issues. When we talk about an extrinsic condition, there are certain anatomical features about the rotator cuff in particular, the supraspinatus tendon, which is the most common of the rotator cuff tendons in terms of injury. And the supraspinatus tendon has to pass through an enclosed arch formed by the coracoid, acromion, and the coracochromial ligament that connects the two. And extrinsic mechanisms are usually due to some encroachment of that physical space through which the supraspinatus tendon must pass. And that encroachment of space causes damage to the tendon, and that's what we usually think about when we talk about extrinsic scenarios. When we talk about overuse, we're talking about either athletic or repetitive use due to overhead activities very common in sports, baseball, volleyball, swimming, for example, as well as repetitive use in the manual worker, such as you know assembly line uh, painters, carpenters, people who, who have to do repetitive motion with their arm. And, and all three of these factors, intrinsic and extrinsic and overuse, all contribute significantly to the prevalence of rotator cuff injuries. So to appropriately address the problem, one should try to address each of these three factors? I think the difficulties in treatment today is that we don't really have a good way very often of determining which of these factors or, in fact, combination of these factors is the causative event in terms of rotator cuff injuries. Rotator cuff injuries start very slowly. They'll start with someone having shoulder pain, generalized shoulder pain. But, of course, they're not going to see their doctor just because they have generalized shoulder pain, not not even at that point in a primary care scenario. So the condition goes on, and it's only... closer to end-stage or at least mid-stage disease that a doctor is consulted in the first place. And at that point, identifying the initial mechanism of injury is quite difficult. And so it it is important to understand, based on patient history and uh, workup and x-rays and physical evaluation, uh, what factors are likely most causative of the pain and lack of function in order to best treat the patient. And are there specific things in a clinical evaluation, that is, on physical exam or with diagnostic testing that would lead one to focus 
on either the intrinsic, extrinsic, or overuse more one more than the other? The classic condition is first to get a series of x-rays that include a so-called outlet view of the shoulder, which allows you to see the general shape of the acromion, general shape of the overhanging arch. And historically, frankly, historically, as recent as several years back, this was believed to be the primary factor, which is if the acromial shape were such that it were curved or hooked, then the surgical approach was straightforward, which was remove that curved or hooked nature of the acromion and thereby relieve that external extrinsic compression to the tendon. And there's some very convincing data that shows both in patient populations, populations and in cadaveric studies in the laboratory that the incidence of rotator cuff tears and these curved or hooked acromion is much greater than when the acromion is flat. So an x-ray is a key factor in terms of identifying the extrinsic contribution. The overuse contribution is probably more straightforward, generally speaking, but harder to diagnose. What is the person's occupation? What is their recreational activity? Does that predispose? We know what conditions, what sports. We have epidemiologic data to say what are the scenarios that induce overuse of repetitive injury type of scenarios to the rotator cuff. So taking a good history can help with that aspect of it. That's almost exclusively history-based because there's, there's no uh, you know, diagnostic test per se that one can perform to say, aha, this is an overuse injury, but certainly one can diagnose that from history. Regarding intrinsic issues, there are some laser Doppler type studies that can be done to look at blood flow in the region, but that tends to be more of identifying this as a degenerative condition, which is also in part done on patient history. How long has this been present? Is this an elderly person? Things like that. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and discussing rotator cuff injury and tear with me is Dr. Louis Soslowski, professor of orthopedic surgery and bioengineering at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Soslowski, very often we see MRIs being used to look at the soft tissues, to look at the tendons themselves. Is that helpful? Yeah, that's very helpful, particularly in, in trying to diagnose size and location of tear. That's something that cannot be well done on x-ray, for example. Certainly the tendon is not seen. So in trying to identify the size and location of the tear, the MRI can be extremely valuable, and that, of course, will help dictate surgical treatment. Regardless at that time, uh, prior to potential surgery, um, one would go through uh, significant conservative therapy in almost all types of cases. And does that uh, anti-inflammatory, ice, physical therapy approach really result in, in healing and, and cure of the problem? Well, there, there are different thoughts on that. And I guess the first and, and frankly quite important feature is ice and rest and physical therapy can relieve the pain and with appropriate activity modification and physical therapy to train certain muscles to fire earlier or later or more or less, one can certainly help the patient significantly go back to most, most of what they used to do. The question as to whether it truly cures the disease or the injury is really a second question. Certainly, if patients can go back and be happy and, and perform all their activities of daily living and so on, that, that's fine. But ultimately, it probably hasn't really healed the tendon. And, and there's some data com coming out now that suggests that a, a small rotator cuff tear that responds well to conservative therapy, as we're discussing now, will likely progress to a larger tear later, which will be more difficult to manage, and in that case, surgically, 
And there's a little bit of a debate in the field now as to whether one should operate on those sooner versus later. Is there data about after uh, surgical treatment? What is the incidence of re-tear or, or after conservative treatment, re-tear and functional limitations? Yeah, that's a very important point. So most of the data suggests that in many cases, pain can be relieved. People will seek rotator cuff treatment for really two primary reasons. One is pain, and the second is loss of function. So for pain, many rotator cuff procedures work quite well, and pain is one thing that patients are told they can expect significant relief. The question of function is a separate issue, and you bring up the issue of retear rate, which is particularly important here because retear rate is now and now more and more being recognized as an important clinical problem with second-look arthroscopy, with ultrasound or MRI, we're beginning to determine and appreciate more commonly the fact that in, frankly, most rotator cuff repairs, I'm sorry to say, there, there is a high incidence of retear rate, which may not result in significant pain, but certainly the d- data shows has significant loss of function. And is this tear of the tendon from the bone? or Yeah, m- most rotator cuff tears and re-tears are the tendon from the bone. There are some cases, although a minority of intratendon, tendon-to-tendon tears, but most rotator cuff tears are tendon-to-bone, and the re-tear is the tendon off the bone. And in, in terms of the re-tear and, and functional limitations, how long a time should one rest the arm versus try to get uh, the shoulder back into some activity after a procedure? This is also a very important point, and that's actually the subject of some controversy and the subject of some of our current research. 20 years ago, post-rotator cuff repair, the post-operative care was immobilization for a period of several weeks. And with the advent and commonality of arthroscopy, people said, well, let's get these people moving faster to avoid the problems of stiffness or loss of range of motion or those type of confounding factors. And consistent with treatment in the hand, what we have gone to here is uh, faster mobilization because one, patient's wanted, and two, it's generally believed that that increases the rate of healing to get some mechanical loading. But actually, what has happened is now that we have measured retail rate, we realize actually there are some fundamental differences when evaluating data looking at problems in the hand versus problems in the shoulder. Those problems are simply in the shoulder, as, as we just discussed. Most of the problems are tendon to bone healing, and in the hand, frankly, most of the problems are tendon to tendon healing and more of an acute nature, nature rather than a chronic nature. So there are some very fundamental differences that one would expect would result in fundamental difference postoperatively. Furthermore, in the hand, the primary problem is adhesions and scar formation, whereas in the shoulder, the primary problem is retear, not adhesions and scar formation. And in fact, what we found in the laboratory is that in the shoulder, any loss of motion or stiffness seems to be recoverable with time, and the trade-off for that is an increase in repair strength, which is really a fundamental improvement in the functional ability of patients. And so it would make sense that if adhesions and the like are the problem, that early mobilization would be helpful, but if it's a tendon-to-bone healing issue, it may be best to let that heal a little bit before you start stressing that. Right. So it's clear that in tendon-to-tendon healing in the hand, and the data is very convincing and compelling, that passive motion early is very important. Otherwise, adhesions and scar formations form that really are problematic. And just to take a step back, I think what has happened in the shoulder world, people looked at that hand data and said, wow, that's convincing data, which it is, and said, let me try this on my patients because 
who wants to be in a sling for an extended period of time? Everyone wants to get back to motion. And philosophically, you say, well, some controlled loading is a good thing, and motion reduces adhesions. But in the shoulder, that's not our primary problem. Our primary problem is retear rate. Well, I want to thank Dr. Louis Seslowski, who has been our guest, pointing out a very important point in the healing of rotator cuff tears, stressing the contrast with hand injury recovery, saying that in order to prevent re-tear, which is the main problem after a rotator cuff repair, a period of more prolonged rest may indeed be appropriate rather than early mobilization. This has been Dr. Lee Friedman, your host. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To learn more about this or any other show, please visit us at ReachMD.com where you can also register and sign up for access to our on-demand features. Thank you for listening.